the Israelites would be carried off into exile where they would be in Babylon as prisoners of war for six or seven decades. But God, as we saw all the way back in Isaiah 40, has promised to deliver his people. And today, here in Isaiah 49, God speaks of his servant who will free his people. But if you read Isaiah 49, you quickly come to the conclusion that he's not talking about Cyrus the Persian here. Yes, Cyrus will come and conquer the Babylonians and allow God's people to go back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple. But this servant of the Lord that we see in Isaiah 49 is different from Cyrus. This servant of the Lord speaks God's very word. This servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49 is so great that saving Israel is not enough. So this servant will save people from all nations and will save people from the ends of the earth. You see that in verses 5 and 6. Look at that with me. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back and to gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, God says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Your translation may say a light for the nations, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 52, when we get there in this sermon series, we will see that God says that his servant would suffer and die but be raised up again. Here in Isaiah 49, he hints at that as he talks about how the servant will be despised, but that at some point kings and princes will serve him. You see that in the next verse, in verse 7. Look at that with me. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to, whom, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. God goes on to say that a day is coming when his servant will restore all things, when he will make all things right. In fact, he uses language that will be echoed in Revelation 7, talking about the restoration of all things, pointing back to this promise here in Isaiah 49. You see it there in verses 8 through 13. Listen to what God says. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. 
If you were with us for Isaiah 40, you recognize this language here in verse 11 about mountains being made into roads, about highways being raised up as we prepare the way for the Lord to come as the servant comes. If you're familiar with Revelation 7, you recognize verse 10 here. They will neither hunger nor thirst or the sun beat upon them, but they'll be led by him who has compassion on them, uh, echoed in Revelation chapter 7. Of course, the promise of a new covenant in verse 8, that he will be a covenant for the people, which we will revisit as we come to the Lord's table today, as Jesus, the servant of the Lord, announces a new covenant in his blood. These are great promises. And after this great crescendo of God promising his servant as a light for all nations to save people from all over the earth, to restore all things, to make all things right, right after God calls all people on earth to shout for joy, then in verse 14, God's people respond. I want to read verse 13 again and then the people's response in verse 14 so that you can hear them next to each other. Listen to the contrast. Verse 13, God says, Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Verse 14, God's people answer. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. You see, in the midst of this great recitation by God, of his worldwide salvation, in the midst of his promising that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, right in the midst of all this, God's people respond. And as they hear the promises of God, God's people are unmoved. They are unimpressed. They feel unloved, unappreciated, uncared for. The great British pastor J. Alec Motyer commenting on verse 14 says, The sense of anticlimax at verse 14 could hardly be stronger. And I would have to agree with him. As God's people say to God, after hearing his promises, that's great what you're going to do in the future. That's great what you've done in the past. But in the here and now, your people are struggling. What are you doing for us today in the here and now? You've forsaken us. You've forgotten us. Now, before we're too hard on the people of God in Isaiah's day, let's just be honest with ourselves. Verse 14 is often where we live, isn't it? We do that as the people of God. We hear God's promises from his word and we say, Lord, that is great what you did for the people of God back in Isaiah's day. That's great what you did back in the Old Testament and the New Testament times. And yes, I love hearing about your promises about how you're going to make all things new and how you're going to do stuff in the future. Yes, Lord, I hear your promises. But what about your people in the here and now? We often feel forsaken. We often feel forgotten by God in our families, in our marriages, in our not being married, in our job, in our relationships, in our finances, 
in our physical health and threats to it, we often feel forsaken, forgotten, abandoned, deserted by God. He seems so far away and we feel so alone. As people who go to church and read the Bible, we believe God can deliver us. What we wonder is, does he want to? Does God even know what we face? Has God forgotten us? Does he even care about what we are facing? In verses 15 and 16, God answers these questions that the people of Isaiah's day were asking, that our own hearts ask. God answers those questions with two unbelievable images. And so I want to read verse 14, the question again, and then God's answer. Look for those two images in verses 15 and 16. I want us to spend the bulk of our time focusing on God's answer to people who feel this way in our hearts, to people like us. If you feel that way today, I want you to hear God's word. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Verse 15, God's answer. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this word of assurance to your people. We confess that we often feel far away from you. We are unmoved by the promises in your word, those that you have fulfilled and those that you will fulfill in the future. We feel forgotten and forsaken. We feel abandoned and alone in our loneliness, in our anxiety. We even begin to question your goodness. God, forgive us. And speak to us today through your word. Holy Spirit, come and please use the words that you inspired through the prophet Isaiah. And use these words to comfort your people, to speak into our hearts. Help us to see, to experience, to taste, to even get a glimpse of the great love that God has for us. And as we do, I pray that we would be comforted, but that we would also be forever changed. Heavenly Father, only you can do this. No preacher can open our ears. No preacher can help us experience your love. And so I pray now that you would come and do what only you can do. And I ask that you would do so even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Really, the question we have here is this. How does God deal with someone who feels forsaken and forgotten by him? And if we're honest, we're asking the question, how does God deal with us? Because we feel this way many times. And so as we come, before I start looking at verse 15 and verse 16, can I just point out a few ways that God does not deal with us? Can I point out what he doesn't say here? Notice a few things about that. First of all, God does not put the burden on us. Do you see that? God doesn't say you need to get it together. God doesn't say you need to get your facts straight. Because I do stuff for you all the time. You ate today because it was my will. 
You took your next breath because it was about. And those things are true. But that's not how God responds. Also notice God does not belittle us. God doesn't come to his people exasperated and say, I am so tired of your insecurity and your whining. You need to man up. You need to put on your big girl pants. You need to grow up. God doesn't belittle us in that way. Although a lot of those things are probably true of us. Also notice that God doesn't ignore us. God doesn't hear this question from his people and say, I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. God does answer. And he responds with a tender, loving answer. And God, the first thing he does is he asks a question. And it's a question that we know the answer to. It's a question we can relate to. It's a question designed to help us to see the truth so that what is true can drive how we think and what we do and how we feel. And what God does is he compares his love for us to one of the closest human relationships on the planet. Look at the question he asks in verse 15. We'll take some time to meditate on it and answer it. What's the question? Verse 15, God asks, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? That's the question God asks. Now, I want to give a short disclaimer at this point. You should know that I have never been in labor, nor have I delivered a child out of my body. I have never breastfed a child. I've never had milk come into my body where I breastfed a child. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. I have been really close to somebody who has done that, and I've seen them do it like three times, and I've kind of witnessed it and been close. If you hear things in this about breastfeeding or about what's best for your kids, that is not what Isaiah is talking about. So let those things go. Don't worry about those things. But hear what the Lord says. What he says about his feeling about you and his relationship with you. Because as we think about these things, as we think about a nursing mom, which is the image that we have here, the obvious answer to the question can she forget? The answer is no. And think about the reasons. First, we know that when a mom nurses a baby, there's an emotional connection that happens. There are a lot of reasons for that. Nursing releases all kinds of hormones and chemicals that can cause an emotional connection with that baby. But what God is saying is, I have provided for you. I have given for you. I have sustained you. I have given you what you need for sustenance for life. And there is an emotional connection between us. I love you, and I am connected, and I have been there, and I've been faithful to you, and I will continue to be. So God is saying, hey, there's some sort of an emotional connection there. Don't think God doesn't have emotions. He gets angry. He's jealous for his people. He has great love for us. So there's an emotional connection. Second, when I look at this and I think about, can a mom, can a mom forget the baby at her breast? Another reason why we would have to answer that no is because there is a physical connection there, right? Now, I don't want to get into too much details or press the image too far, but my understanding is if you have been nursing a baby regularly and then you stop, 
within a few hours, your body will remind you that you are a nursing mom, that you will feel physical discomfort as your milk comes in to feed the baby. And if you don't feed the baby, you will physically hurt. God's saying, that's what it's like with you. I have a connection with you like that I can't forget. It hurts me to forget. Also notice the unconditional relation. There's this emotional connection. There's this physical connection. There's an unconditional connection between this mom and this baby. Think about this. have to be careful here. I got in trouble with the focus groups on this one. When we ask the question, what does the baby do? What's the baby do to maintain this relationship? You know, in every other human relationship, there's this give and take. There's that in friendship. There's that in marriage. But in this situation, it is all take from the baby, and it is all giving on the part of the mom. The baby doesn't do anything, and people say, oh, no, the baby does something. Yeah, I understand. They're cute. They're cuddly. I get that. But if you've had a baby before, your life changes. <laughs> your life revolves around that baby. And that baby brings nothing to the table to help out, but somehow that baby brings joy into that home and into that mom's heart and into dad's heart. How? What does the baby do to bring joy to the mom? Nothing. The baby doesn't do anything. The mom loves the baby because the baby is hers. She loves the baby because that baby belongs to her. And this idea of belonging is what's behind this second image in verse 16. So let's look at it. Remember, but this idea of belonging, that's why the mom loves the baby unconditionally, although the baby brings nothing to the table. And then God in verse 16 says this, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Maybe you've sung the song that we sang earlier and you never knew why it said that our names were graven on God's hands. Well, it's because of Isaiah 49. The song's based on Scripture. And God says here, see, your name is graven on my hands. Here's the image. Remember, God's people are going to be conquered by the Babylonians and carried off into exile. And as prisoners of war in exile, what would often happen is, if you're a prisoner of war, a slave to a master or a servant, often the name of the servant would be engraved on your hands like a brand. It was a constant reminder of who you, watch this, belonged to. There's our idea of belonging. It was a reminder to the servant of the slave that I belong to the master and I see his name right here on my hands. And everything that I do, all that I do, I do for the master. Everything I do with my hands, I'm reminded that I'm doing it for him, that it belongs to him, that it is his, that it is for his estate, that it is all for him. That's what the image is. But nowhere in history does it ever say that the servant's name is engraved on the palms of the master. You see, God says your name is engraved on the palms of his hands. It's a constant reminder to God that, that you belong to him. It's a constant reminder that everything he does, he does for you. He does for your good. 
Like that baby, you belong to him. He loves you, and you bring him great joy, not because you do anything, but because you belong to him. Because he made you, because you are his. You know, we expect God to say, as we look at these images, that his relationship with us is like a mom and a baby. But you know, that's not what he says. What God actually says here is imagine the very closest relationship you have ever seen before in your life. Imagine that closest relationship and realize that my love for you is stronger than that. He says, though she may forget, I will not forget you. You know, some of us do have moms that forget. Maybe your mom abandoned you. Maybe it seems to you that your mom forgot you, that she didn't always act for your good. But I want you to hear in verse 15, God says of you, I will not forget you. Maybe you had a great mom. You know, even great moms fall short sometimes. They forget. Sometimes they disappoint. Even if your mom never did anything wrong her entire life, which is hard for me to believe, moms get old and they can't continue to function. And even the best of moms slow down and are not able to do what they did before. And even the best moms, if the Lord tarries, they will die. If you haven't lost your mom already and the Lord tarries, we will all lose our mom at some point in time. But God says his relationship is stronger because we will never lose him. That nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. Love from humans has limits. God's love has no limits. God is so compassionate and gracious and abounding in steadfast love as we recited in Psalm 103 today. I wonder, what would it be like if we knew, really owned, really accepted, really grasped, really believed that the God of the universe loved us like this? How would that change things? I'd encourage you to think about that this week, because I think it would change a lot. A few things off the top of my head. Number one, I think it would give us a joy inside our, of us, despite the circumstances going on outside of us. What is 1 Corinthians 13? Love always believes, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what love can do. I believe we would have a peace, we'd have a freedom a freedom from having to have loves of the world if we really believe we had this love of God. We'd have a rest. We'd have a security. We would have a comfort that we don't have when we don't believe that God loves us in this way. And I want to tell you today that this love from God is what you are really looking for. It's what you long for. And I know that because it is what you were made for. Maybe you've exhausted yourself searching for this love. You see, when we don't really believe God loves us, we look for meaning and significance and worth and many other things. 
And in order to prove first to ourselves and secondly to others that we do have significance, that we do have meaning, that we are worth something, we put pressure on ourselves to achieve and to perform. And that looks very different for many of us, right? But some ways it can look, for some of us it looks like having a successful and fulfilling career. That's what gives us significance or worth. For some of us it is having a stable and loving marriage. For others of us, what determines whether we're worth something is if we have well-behaved, well-adjusted children. For some of us, where we really get our identity is having a good reputation or having a certain quality of life or providing that quality of life for others. And we think if we have whatever the thing is for you, we think if we have that, we'll be okay. And success at that thing means life for us. But failure at those things feels like death to us because to us it means we don't have worth or significance. You may feel that way, but I want you to know that is not true to the way things are. Your worth, your significance is not based on what you do or achieve. Your worth your significance, your identity is based on the fact that you belong to God. Body and soul, all that you are, all that you have. Your identity is based on the fact that God loves you and you bring him great joy, not because you do anything for him, but because you belong to him. He made you. You are his. In these images God gives us, what do we do to gain God's love? Nothing. Our relationship with God is built first and foremost not on our performance for God, but on God's performance for us. It's not based on our faithfulness to God, but God's faithfulness to us. Our relationship with God is not based on our moving toward God and making the first move. It's based on our responding to his making the first move to us. The good news of the Bible is not do stuff for God and you'll be okay. The main message of the Bible is that God has done everything for you in the person and work of his son. The suffering servant that Isaiah talks about here in Isaiah. That God has done those things. And we can rest in him. We can be honest about our failures and the way we fall short. Maybe some of us, for the first time, we can be honest about that because we don't have to succeed at those things to prove our worth. We can be honest. No more faking it. We can look to him to live in us and do these things in us and through us. Listen to me. In Christ, and in Christ alone, will you find the peace and the joy and the freedom and the comfort and the security, and the worth that you long for. Maybe you hear all this and you're still skeptical. I understand. We live in a cynical age. A lot of people make a lot of promises. A lot of preachers say a lot of things. Talk is cheap. But I want you to know that God does not just say that he loves you. He's done more than just give you powerful images and metaphors, although he does do that to remind us and to set our hearts aright. 
But God has done more than that. He has shown his love. God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. I ask you, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how can we think that God won't be faithful to us in all things? I ask you, is there anything in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Absolutely not. Let's pray and ask God to help us to remember these things. Heavenly Father, we are